Uh, really excited to start this new series. I think it's going to be a great, timely uh, time of timely time. Yep, I need more coffee. Uh, I think it's going to be an appropriate theme for us this, this holiday season, uh, because how many of you think of peace when it comes to Christmas time? <laughs> Just a resounding peace. Ah, all is well with the world, right? How many of you look and you watch the news and think, man, what a time of peace, right? Yeah. What a time of peace we're in. I mean, just, res no, we are missing peace, absolutely. And I'm uh, just anticipating as we look at the various aspects of what peace can look like and what peace Jesus came to bring. He is the Prince of Peace. And so we're going to spend these weeks leading up to Christmas talking about this and what peace can look like in our homes and in our community and in our world, in our own lives and, uh, and really good stuff that we're jumping into as we, we jump into these themes. Uh, and today's scripture, we're going to read uh, out of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And then I'm going to welcome up Josh Kelly. He's going to bring the message today. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. I want to welcome up Josh Kelly. Thank you, Pastor Sean. Good morning, guys. So you guys kind of resonate with the idea like of uh, the holidays missing peace. Right, I mean, it, peace is a really good Christmassy word, right? We see it all over Hobby Lobby. We see it, you know, on all the cards and all that, but not necessarily so much what you feel during this holiday, right? It's like, you know, okay, so we just had Thanksgiving, getting ready for all that, cleaning the house, cooking all the food, you burnt something, nothing's open. I mean, you just have, and then you go from that into, of course, uh, Black Friday, which I avoid like the plague. All the Christmas parties that are fun, uh, the worst part uh, is the Christmas shopping, um, which I really can't complain about because I don't do any of it. My wife does all of it because I not really, my wife's like Sean, you know, Sean has this gift, Pastor Sean has this gift for giving gifts that matter, as is my wife, but I don't. So, <laughs> but like yesterday, we were like driving, running some errands and like, okay, well, we're looking for this one thing. Well, we could stop by Walmart and get it, my wife says, and I'm like, nope. I don't like Walmart in the best of times, but Walmart during Christmas, I remember one year, it was a Christmas season, and we're, we had to go to Walmart for some reason, and as we're walking in, and I'm just in this completely, you know, Grinch, Scrooge combination, and I, I kind of, I see all these streams of people heading in, I'm just like this, and I looked at Marilyn and said, welcome to hell. <laughs> so this is a very appropriate series for us to have at this time of year, missing peace, talking about peace and what it means. But before we can get to peace at Walmart, we have to start with peace with God, right? Because that's the foundation for all of it. So we're going to um, just read again the passage that we started with. This is Romans 5, 1 through 2. I'll keep on coming back to this several times during the sermon. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace 
in which we now stand, and we have and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This passage uh, means a lot to me. It's something that uh, years ago, when I was in college, uh, I got to. I was the teaching assistant, the TA for uh, Mark Duzak, who was this this uh, the professor who did Romans at Life Bible College, where I went. And a couple years ago, you, uh, if you're here, you may remember we had uh, some interns from Life here staying uh, with us. And when I got to say, oh yeah, I was uh, Duzik's uh, TA, it's like I was a rock star all of a sudden, which that normally doesn't get you credit with most people being a TA for Romans, but with these guys it did. But when I got to, to uh, be the TA, uh, Duzik gave me the opportunity to, to teach one of the weeks, which was really cool and terrifying. And the passage he had me teach was this, Romans 5, 1 through 11, the longer section. And I remember as I was trying to teach it to these college students, okay, so these are all upper divisions, so these are uh, juniors, maybe seniors. We've been studying the Bible forever. Most of the kids there have grown up in the church. You know, we're, a lot of us can, like, read it in Greek and parse it and diagram it and all this stuff. And it becomes so... Um, normal. So we're so used to it. It's just like, yeah, we have peace with God. And it's just like, it, it's become almost like this, uh, we don't get how big of a deal that is. That peace with God is a lot, 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 lot bigger than not having a migraine over the Christmas season. Peace is a really big deal. And so this morning in, in this message, what I'm really hoping to help all of us do, myself included, is not just know that we have peace with God, but to feel it. And to do that, we have to talk about why that matters, why it matters that we have peace with God. So let me just open with prayer real quick, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to dive into your word. It's, uh, it's powerful, it's rich, it's your words to us. And it's going to tell us some, some vital truth, things we need to know about our relationship with you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you come, that you fill me to, to speak the words you'd have me speak, and uh, that you'd be with each heart so they can hear the words they need to hear where they're at in this moment of their life, Father. And I just pray that you do your work in your name. Amen. So as I, I think I mentioned last time I preached, I really don't remember. But so by trade, I'm a writer. I'm a freelance writer um, and I'm a novelist. I haven't made any write, money writing novels. I make my money doing everything else. But, you know, I, I write stories as well. And being a novelist, has changed how I really view the Bible. It helps me understand it in a way that's much more of a story because the Bible is filled with stories and stories are powerful and they, they get into us and they infect our head and they infect our heart. And so I'm all about stories. And I recently had a chance to talk to uh, Logos or is this big company up in Bellingham. They make like the biggest Bible software available. And I was talking to some folks who work there about um, some ideas I have for maybe writing an article. And I told them about this one idea of like, a series of articles talking about reading the Bible as a novelist, and one of the things I talked to them about was this whole idea I have for talking about Levitical zombies. And that got their attention. And I'll get back to that in just a little bit here, Levitical zombies. But I want to start, I want to kind of very briefly, don't worry, this won't be like a whole series in one Sunday, but very briefly, like the grand story of the Bible, and it starts with this idea of peace, that we had, God made this amazing world and then it was shattered by sin. And so when it talks about peace, peace isn't the same thing as tranquility. Peace, the Hebrew word, this idea that they would have been really working from is shalom. We hear that term a bit. Um, you know, it's how in Israel they'll greet each other, shalom. But shalom is this idea of everything is right with the world. The opposite of 
shalom is chaos, is disorder, is pain and misery and suffering. And in the ancient mind, the ancient Near East mind, the uh, symbol they would use for chaos was oceans, was the water. Because you have to imagine, you know, for us, we have, you know, massive cruise liners. We can go through water. It's not that big of a deal. But when you're riding these little dinghies, the water's terrifying. And that's why, you, if like, at the very end of the Bible in, Ro- in Gla- sorry, no, Revelation, that's the end of the Bible. <laughs> it uses this imagery of there being no sea. And if you like water as much as I do, that's kind of a bummer of a, a thing. Like, no sea in heaven? Like, come on. But they're trying to explain the idea of not, not saying there's no water, it's that there's no chaos. There's peace. There's shalom. And so we see this in this idea of chaos right at the very beginning of the Bible, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in the last song we sang, it referred to the spirit being over the waters. And it's this idea that the, the waters represent chaos. And in all the ancient stories, all, everyone had some sort of creation myth that they would tell. All the, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, they all had these stories. And these stories all involve the chaos, the seas, being subdued by the gods in various ways. Some of them have battles. Some, I mean, there's some of them, frankly, uh, X-rated stories because, you know, that's what they did then. But, I mean, all these stories that all have to do with like the gods having to fight to, to wrestle shalom, to wrestle order out of the chaos. Except in the Bible, it says God spoke. He's just spoke, and the chaos went away and it became shalom. It became peace. It became order. And as you go through the story of the Bible, God's creating, He's creating, and it says, This is good, this is good, just by the, His mere words. And again, this image of this perfect world, this, this paradise with perfect shalom, no chaos. And then He makes Man and, man and woman. And he puts them in the garden. And they're given the job. God gives them these, these marching orders. And they basically are, go and take the shalom that I've given you and continue to spread it. Because the garden would need to be tended and things would need to be done. You'd need to name the animals. But the idea is that we as people were given the job of spreading God's shalom throughout, the, throughout creation. And so there's, there's this, this great picture of what God's done and this responsibility is given us. And again, peace. But then, like any story, there's the twist. There, there's the antagonist shows up. This, the tempter, Satan comes and you know, tempts Adam and Eve. And there's this whole thing about the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that they, they take from this tree and now they have knowledge. And now what's interesting is in a lot of like modern thinking, like Satan becomes the good guy because he's giving them knowledge. And knowledge is good, Right? Why, what sort of God wants us to be ignorant? So, again, a lot, of, a lot of people have this mindset that the, the, the devil's the good guy because he brings knowledge. That's not what's meant by knowledge. Knowledge, to know is to experience. If you have kids, do you remember the first time you, your child experienced death? Or if you don't have kids, just even think of yourself. When was the first time you actually got Death. You could, you know, my, my, my little girls, I think when our first cat, Princess, died, you know, we, the, we'd spoken about death. They knew the word death, but when she, Princess died, it now was just this kind of an opportunity to explain everything dies. This is the, go ahead, you can pet her, you can say goodbye, everything dies. Mommy's going to die, Daddy's going to die. That's knowing, that's knowledge. That knowledge wasn't ever supposed to be necessary. 
We weren't ever supposed to have to have this working knowledge, this understanding of death, of sin, of suffering. That's what came with the eating of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. But yet, even in this whole thing where all of a sudden the innocence is broken and they know evil, they now they get it in a way they weren't supposed to, they weren't ever supposed to be burdened with, God gives this glimmer of hope. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking to Satan, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's very subtle, but you see this, this story that continues to work, this thread, we call it this, the scarlet thread of redemption throughout this Bible, these hints that God keeps dropping that I'm going to fix it. It's been, it's been messed up. The shalom has been broken, has been corrupted, but I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. There's all these promises all the way through. So anyways, after the fall, things go downhill fast. I mean, you start with eating, uh, eating the, this uh, forbidden apple and hiding, and now your kids are killing each other. I mean, literally, you know, Cain and Abel, Cain gets jealous, and then a couple generations, you have this guy by the name of Lamech. He, he's the uh, first guy to decide that two wives is a good idea, and he appears to be a real jerk and a nasty guy, and like one day he sits down with his wives and starts singing this song to them about how awesome he is because if someone hits him, he'll kill them. I mean, he's just like, just not a good guy. And you just downhill, downhill. Noah, where it says God finally was grieved that he made humanity. Just there's so much sin. There's so much brokenness. And it's like these stories that you sometimes read or these movies you see where you, you have the, the, the boy meets girl and they're the perfect couple. It's just like such a good thing. Everyone sees it's a good thing. But then one of them just goes off on a path and loses everything they had. And you're like, no, don't do that. Years ago, I watched a movie called Good Earth, and I, I frankly don't remember it that well, but I remember you know, it takes place in China, and this young man, uh, you know, arranged marriage and all this, but he gets this wife that he frankly doesn't deserve. She may not be the prettiest gal, but she is sharp, and she breaks basically through her, who, through her savvy. She's like a Proverbs 31 woman, and she increases him, his wealth. And, and you're like, man, this is awesome. He is so fortunate to have her. But he starts like, man, this is kind of awesome. I get, have all this stuff, so now I guess I get to get a second wife. And then things go downhill from there. And when he makes that decision, you're like, ah, what? You had something good. And this is the story of the Bible that you keep on having repeated time and time again. That there's this good thing, us and God, God and Israel, but they keep on choosing the wrong direction. They keep on making bad choices. And you have this story of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, where God basically has this prophet, and he says, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And you have this story of Hosea continually seeking her and bringing her back and forgiving her. She keeps on running off and running off, and it's a painful story to read, but it's this picture that God was, was giving that this is my love for you. You keep on wandering, but I'm going to keep on pursuing. Kind of a, not quite as a side note, but I know as a dude, sometimes when I read in, in the Psalm, I'm sorry, in the Proverbs, not Proverbs, Psalms, Prophets, all this stuff about God being like a, a lover wooing the woman and all this, it, sometimes it doesn't sit well with me, because again, because I'm a dude. And I like to have a hard time relating with it. But when I think of God and how it was when my wife and I first met, and uh, I really I didn't get permission to share the stories at all, except to say that she, she thought I was cute and all that, but she was kind of afraid to be to date, and so she 
To say she gave off confusing signals would be uh, an understatement. <laughs> but she gave me just enough that I kept on pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing. And sometimes she whispers, I probably went back to that a little bit more, you know, um, now 22 years into marriage. But I get the pursuing. I get how God pursues me because I remember how I pursued my wife. And it's this whole picture in the Bible of God pursuing God pursuing. And now from here, I want to turn to one of my favorite books of the Bible, which is Leviticus. And if you're familiar with Leviticus, that seems like a strange statement because it doesn't top, usually make the top 10. Because it's an instruction manual for priests and about how to deal with mildew and menstrual cycles and um, things dying and rats falling into, into food dishes and how do you know if this mildew is the good mildew or the bad mildew? And leprosy, you know, I'm sure, Rochelle, you appreciate all the, the leprosy stuff. But it's just, it, it, it's, and lots about sacrifices, lots and lots about fact, sacrifices. But here's the reason why I love that book. By this time, people had gotten so used to sickness, death, sin, the whole brokenness, the whole chaos that has come because of sin, that we... They, we just got used to it. This is normal. But all of the laws about uncleanliness, about not eating pork, and about all these things were all designed to remind them this is not the way it's supposed to be. You had to offer a sacrifice if you were in the presence of a dead person because death is not right. It's broken. Something's wrong. It's all these things that were designed to remind us that all this stuff, even mildew, is not the way it was meant to be. And there's this little bit of it that is so powerful to me. That is, in, um, if you were, say like you're, you're an Israelite, and you slandered your neighbor, you'd sinned. Of course, you'd, you'd recognize it, you'd repent, and you'd apologize to them. But then you'd have to offer a sacrifice. Because your sin wasn't just against your neighbor, it was also against the entire community, because you broke down the community. But you also, had to, you also had sinned against God. So what you have to do is you have to take a lamb. And a lot of times the lamb has actually lived with you in your house. Your kids would have known this lamb. They probably had a name for it. And you had to offer this lamb as a sacrifice. And in fact, as the, 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 the language when it says that you, you as the, the sinner, as the penitent, you lay your hands on the lamb's head. It actually says it's like leans into it, like you're, like you're pressing weight into it to try and take this guilt that you put on yourself by the way you've hurt the community and the way you've offended God and the way you've, you've sinned, and it's going on to the lamb. You're pressing against that. And then you, as the penitent, as the worshiper, you would slit the neck of the lamb. That is your job because you're the one who sinned. Then you'd, the, the, you'd hand it to the priest, and the priest would, would put some of the blood on the altar and drain the blood. And the point is, as an Israelite, you would have understood in the clearest way possible, when I sin, something dies. When I sin, something dies. This is my working definition for sin. Sin is that which destroys us, destroys our relationship with other people, and destroys our relationship with God. That's what sin is. Sin is nothing you get, like you get away with, like, ooh, I, I was naughty. No, no, sin kills. And the whole point of Leviticus was to really get this into your mind, that sin kills.
A symbol is something visible that reminds us of an invisible, invisible thing. So my wedding ring is a visible thing to remind me of an invisible reality of a marriage. In the same way, that sacrifice was the symbol of something dying. So as I was reading through um, Leviticus this last year, and I was like really struggling with, as a storyteller, how do I approach this as a storyteller, this idea that sin keeps on creeping, keeps on extending, this uncleanliness, that, that if you're unclean and you touch something else, that thing becomes unclean. If someone touches that unclean thing, they become unclean. And it, the sin keeps on expanding and expanding. It can only be stopped through the sacrifice and through all the, these, uh, all these rituals. In fact, in the Old Testament, sin would eventually extend to where the altar itself, the holiest place, would become tainted, and it had to be purified once a year at Yom Kippur. So how do I get this to people who aren't used to this idea of sin and uncleanliness? How would I explain it? And I thought of zombies. Because zombies spread death. A zombie takes a bite out of a person, then that person takes a bite. I mean, that's the nature of sin, that sin keeps on spreading. And it's just this incredible image of the creeping nature of sin. And we've seen that in our lives, right? Where you've made a really bad choice, and it doesn't just stay there. It creeps, and then someone else responds. And, and then, you know, see this one? We've had friends get divorced, right? And, like, from that sin, then other people, now people are taking sides, and it just goes, and it goes, and it goes. So sin is like a zombie. And to flash forward just a little bit, Right towards the beginning of the first century, something really crazy happens. That there's someone who's completely immune to the zombies. But I'll get back to that in just a sec, because it's time to get a little Christmassy. In the book of Galatians, there's this place where Paul talks about the fullness of time. That Jesus came at the fullness of time. And I have this whole sermon that I gave about how you know, Christmas, even though it's not actually on the... Jesus probably wasn't actually born on the 25th of December. It's a great way of explaining it because it's the darkest time of year and blah, blah, I'm not going to give you that sermon now because this will already be long enough. But God's timing was perfect in this way that there is like this window of like 200 years that was the perfect time for Jesus to come so that the gospel could get spread across the world. Because before around um, 30 B.C., you couldn't travel from one part of the Mediterranean to another. There were pirates, there weren't any roads, and if there were roads, there were bandits. It was chaos. And people, I mean, you'd have armies that march from places, but getting from place A to place B was incredibly dangerous. Then you had the, uh, the Greeks conquered so much of the world, and with them came a, an, a world language, Greek. That became the language everyone spoke. So now, kind of like we have English now, Greek is the language everyone's speaking. Communication becomes easier. Then the Romans conquer the Greeks, keep the language, but then the emperor's job was basically to keep peace. He was to make sure that the seas were free of pirates, the roads were clear, and that, um, and that the people had bread. That was basically his job. If he could do that, he could keep on ruling. So through him, through the, through, there was now peace on the high seas. There were peace on the roads. You could travel. And do you know how many thousands of miles we have of interstates in the United States? I don't expect you to know that. It's more of a rhetorical question. 47,000 miles. That's how many miles of interstate. The Romans had 53,000 miles of roads. They were busy. There's some construction project. That, there's stimulus package right there, right? 
I'm not making a political statement about it one way or the other. Just a, a, okay, anyways. <laughs> so this is the world Jesus was born into. People could travel. There's one language. The message could go out. And within about 100, 150 years of when Jesus uh, rescinded to heaven, the Roman Empire collapsed. And it was just as dangerous as before. So this very narrow window where if Jesus would have come any other time, then it would have been, uh, Christianity would have stayed a Palestinian thing. But because of that fullness of time coming at right, just the right moment, the gospel was other, able to spread throughout the world. So Jesus shows up in the fullness of time, in the midst of all the sin and sickness and suffering and chaos in this world. It didn't touch him. It didn't change him. He was the one not affected by the zombies. If the Old Testament, ancient world had zombies, it would have been the lepers, right? They had, these, they, they had the, 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 these skin diseases, highly contagious. They weren't allowed to go near anyone. They had to stay on the outskirts of the city because they were contagious. But Jesus does something that no one else does. He goes and touches the lepers, and he's not infected by them. Guess what? He infects them with wholeness. Guys, that's insane. If there's one dude, you know, imagine a zombie movie where the hero comes and he just touches the, leper, uh, the zombies and they're, they're now healed. And then those zombies, touch, those reformed zombies now touch other ones, they're healed. This is crazy. This is the power of the gospel. This is the peace that God's brought. This is awesome that we were at war with God. We, we, we've created this system of chaos and pain and suffering, death and sickness. But God stepped in and healed that, and is bringing healing. That's really cool, but still kind of general. Let's just get it a bit more personal. Returning to the passage in Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. There's that idea. We are at peace with God through, through uh, justification through Christ, through whom we gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God, that's kind of like referencing pre-fall. That's peace. That's shalom. That's everything. The glory of God is everything being the way it's supposed to be. We rejoice in that hope. When I struggled to understand the to explain the magnitude of this passage to the students, I tried to explain it this way. I'm using newer terms, obviously. But, you know, if I were to say... Amazing news. I just, I just checked my text, even though I'm preaching, and I just found out they found a, a cure to the uh, Peruvian flu. Would that be about the, the response I get, right? But what if I said, guys, there is a cure, not a vaccine, but an actual cure for COVID, and it doesn't involve needles. We, we can all be free of COVID. This whole nation, the whole world is going to be free. I mean, we get a response, right? That'd be a big deal. And if you didn't respond to that, then either A, you wouldn't understand how big of a deal COVID really has been. Because remember last year, we weren't sitting, at, we weren't in this building for Christmas. Or else, two, you didn't believe the cure was real. And that, when we come to a passage like this, Christian or not, if you see this passage and it doesn't move you, then either A, you don't really understand how destructive sin is, which is why I've been spending the last however minutes I've been talking, talk, trying to convey. Or B, you don't really believe that God has freely given this cure and that we can really be cured from 
that sin that is the zombie disease. So I want to just briefly talk about those two groups because you're going to be one of them, probably in both, either that you struggle to believe that you actually need that peace through God or else struggle to believe that God has given you that peace. What's interesting is when I, last time I preached on this passage was about 10 years ago. And at that time, I really felt like I had to hammer into this idea of sin, how sin separates us from God. And that, that's still, obviously, that's still a really big thing. A lot, of people, a lot of times there's this idea, you know, this feeling that I'm a good person, that's good enough. But as a society, there was such a, this sense of, of a relativism, that there is no rules, there's no absolutes, you do whatever you want. And so there's just, in the culture at large, in the American culture at large, there's like no real sense of sin. I couldn't have foreseen that 10 years after that, that now sin is a, a thing again in our culture. Since that time, we've seen things like the Me Too movement, you know, the, the, uh, the riots and the, the, the unrest after George Floyd's uh, death and the cancel culture and all these things. We are now getting a sense in the culture of sin again. So if I were to take this passage and try to explain it, if I were to talk about sin in this world, in this culture's terms, I would say instead of saying we're all sinners, I'd say we're all racists. We're all we're all, all the things that people get canceled for, that's what we are. That is sin. And so our world, do you get what I'm saying? Sin is now a thing that you can get canceled for certain things. So the world is believing in sin again, but what it doesn't believe in is grace. To where when someone makes a mistake and they wore a black face you know, 20 years ago or whatever, they're still canceled for it. There's no grace the point I'm trying to say is we all, I, I'm agreeing with, with that, the culture in this much in that we all deserve punishment. We are all distant from God. We have all offended God. We've all hurt our fellow man, our, fellow, fellow, uh, our friends. We, we, we just, we've hurt this world. We stand in, deservement, in deserving of condemnation. And the gospel says that our past is wiped clean, that we don't have to live in fear of being found out. So, do you relate to that first group that, that struggles to believe that they actually need grace, that they need peace with God? I'll be honest, I'm usually in, that, in this first group because, because I know a lot about the Bible. I apparently think that means I'm a good person, which it doesn't, but I get myself into believing that. So a lot of times I feel like, I'm, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. But then something happens where I go right back into a sin that I've done a, that's my you know, time and time again and I find myself in the second group that, that struggles to believe that God's willing to forgive me. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Are there those things that you keep on doing, keep on fighting against? Sometimes really not so much fighting against, keep struggling against. Bring that to mind. The, the thing that like, that, that perennial thing that you're like, why can't I fix this? Why can't I get over this? Because we're just going to turn in circles and share what that, no, we're not going to share that, no, but... The gospel means that right after the moment that you sin, that you jump right back into that thing that you know you shouldn't be doing, before you even feel sorry for it, you're forgiven. You're at peace with God. That he has redeemed you. Or to put, put stronger terms to it, if you were to have an affair, be driving home, don't even feel bad about it yet, and die in a car wreck, 
if you're a follower of Christ, you're still going to heaven. Huh? But I, you just did something wrong. Why, shouldn't you have to repent? Well, in the passage it says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. So past tense term. Technically it's an error, but past tense is close enough. There's my Greek stuff coming out. As children of God, we have been brought into this place of forgiveness, this place of being justified, this place of being forgiveness, this place of being at peace with God. This is who we are, and it's not dependent on our daily mistakes, even on, on those things that we keep on doing, those fail, ongoing failures. We've been given this, it says that access, we've been given access into this grace in which we now stand. It's this idea of like being welcomed to the presence of the king. This is who we are, that God's grace is big enough to cover over everything. Then the pa I'm going to skip ahead just a couple of verses. This is Romans 8.31. And there's this is such a great passage here. But Paul writes, he says, What then shall we say in response to all these things? Everything I've been saying about grace, everything I've been saying about justification, is God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So here's the picture, guys. If God went to all this effort to send his son, to pull us out of the pit of our sin, to, to get us to restore shalom, to, to heal us, is he just going to leave us on the edge of the pit and say, so long, you're on your own? No, he pulls us out of the pit for a reason, for a relationship, to draw us close to him so that we can be his children and that we can live like it and that we can start living lives that go back to that original job, which was to bring shalom to the world. He's saying, come on, do you want your old job back? Let's get going. Yeah, you're going to keep on falling. You're going to keep on making mistakes, but you still get to be agents of shalom, agents of peace to this entire world. Yeah, but I keep on sinning. I keep on making mistakes. Paul says, uh-uh-uh. Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding with us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall troubles or hardships or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the past, nor the future, or your future, or your past, or your present, none of these things, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have peace with God. This is amazing news, nothing that we deserve. That's what we mean by grace. So this Christmas season, you're at peace with God when the couple times you remember to do the Advent candle and the readings, when you slow down enough and you talk to your kids about, about Jesus and his birth, or when you have a moment alone and you're reading the, the nativity scene. But also, that time that you really lose your temper on Christmas morning and you just feel like a pile of... He's still 
there with you then. That's not going to separate you from the love of Christ. When you're jealous or you're stingy, when, when you try to buy people's love, all those things, none of it can separate you from Christ. You can rest in heavenly peace. We have peace with God. This is our reality, that we have peace with God. Because we're good? No, because he's good. Because he's extending his shalom, his peace, throughout a world that needs it. And that is really, really good news. Amen? Let's pray. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.